Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to travel all the way to Boston, Massachusetts today to catch up with Mr. John West. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to our conversation here in the next hour and uh, and exploring you know your interesting background and uh, and of course your role in the world of sports now and and let me just sort of quickly do a quick intro here for folks who might not know you um i like your your headline in your linkedin profile it says you're a passionate and committed entrepreneur and this being the sports entrepreneurs podcast of course that's already a perfect fit right there and you've you know you obviously had a very entrepreneurial career started several businesses uh, sold several of them and and we'll obviously hear a bit about that later and then we're going to spend you know really about team whistle you know the whistle sports company which you founded about 10, 12 years ago, which is, you know, in the simplest description, I guess, is as a platform, as a digital play for scripted, unscripted content, podcast, uh, and many other things, social media driven environments with over 4 billion monthly video views now globally. So I don't want to jump too far ahead there. Uh, we're going to go much deeper into that later, but uh, it looks like an exciting business. Again, recently teamed up with uh, the 11 company with, with our buddy Andrea, uh, and we'll talk about all that. But before we go there, as I said, let's go back how it all started, coming out of university, studying engineering. And uh, and if I sort of read this correctly, it was um, you were working in some engineer in another group, but maybe didn't quite get along with the founders and decided you can do this better yourself. <laughs> but what's your version of that? <laughs> Yeah, that's fairly close. I um I went to uh, a tiny school in uh, Massachusetts called Worcester Polytech, which was an engineering school, right. and got got my degree in engineering. And while I went to school, uh, the sport that I did was rowing, and I okay. fell in love with rowing. Okay. Um, and and my rowing coach had started an uh, environmental engineering company, right. um, and I worked part-time to pay for some of my school with him. And when I graduated, he gave me an offer, so I liked him, took the job, was there for about a year, and had an idea for how he could expand his business. Right. Uh, so I wrote a three-page business plan, did some research, gave it to him, and he just didn't, didn't get it, didn't right. like it. I right. tried a few times. I said, listen, I, want to, I think there's a big opportunity here. The law just changed in Massachusetts. There's a whole new market. There's no one there yet. We can go get the head start. Right. Uh, he didn't see it. So I, I said, I was very upfront and said, listen, I'm going to leave and try this on my own. Yeah. So I called my dad up. He let me max out a $5,000 credit card. I bought a computer and lived in his basement for three years and wow. started a company, which is now called NSTRAT, that did environmental engineering, which was soil and groundwater and fixing uh, environmental problems. For about love it. seven years. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, again, let, let's give a sense. You coming out of university, which means you were what early twenties here, um, or what, yeah, I was twenty two. Right. Okay. Twenty two. Right. Okay. Awesome. Um, so, so that was your first uh, company. Um, now, I believe you you sold the business, or or it, uh, what was the, how did it, how did the sort of how did Enstrad? Where is it? It's still around, right? I believe. Still around twenty eight years. Um, oh, yeah. So I. Uh, about four, three or four years into that, I realized that most of my friends from from college were engineers, and I, I was a lot more interested in the business side of things. I ended up hiring engineers at my company, and I did the business development and sales and hmm. that stuff. Um, so I didn't really have too many friends who I could talk to business about, and I decided to go get my MBA. I applied to Harvard. Uh, didn't actually think I'd get in, but what, what am I going to lose? So I applied. Right. Surprisingly, got in. It was a one. It was during a three-year period where they did not take the standardized, typical MBA test, um, like an S a GMAT, like an SAT. Mm -hmm. I'm horrible at standardized tests. So uh, anyway, I got lucky. I got in. Um, I did that for two years. So you know, when yep. was on campus doing my classes, I go back and do work and oh, back right. and forth. Okay. And then when I graduated from uh, Harvard, I. Um, I just the environmental engineering industry was beginning to be heavily regulated by the U.S. government, and I just did not want to have a business where the government could change a regulation and throw your whole business upside down. So um, a year after I graduated, I sold it to um, my the number two guy in my company, 
at the time right. at Enstrat and, uh, and moved on. Made a little money and moved to New York, mm. slept on a friend's couch, and then uh, joined a consulting firm for a few years. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about Mitchell Medicine Group. Um, it's a management consulting group. Again, uh, and you're saying it's in New York, so I'm sure there's lots of experiences yeah. and learnings on the back of that. Uh, you know, give us a quick look into that uh, three, four years you were there. Yeah, it, I, it was fascinating for me personally because I'd never really spent time in New York City, so that was a great learning curve. Um, and Mitchell Madison was a brand new consulting firm that was. It was founded by partners from McKinsey and AT Kearney, and they focused on uh, helping large companies with operations and cost cutting and uh, financial um, things. And uh, and I joined. I think there were 150 people when I joined, and they grew to about 1,200 people in three years. Wow! And they had 15 offices around the world. So right. just a Great massive opportunity growth, to, right. yeah, massive growth, a lot of change. You know, I did projects all over the world. So just a great exposure for me. I got to go present to CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And um, uh, and then they, after about three years, the, I became, a, I was elected partner. Um, and right as that happened, they decided to sell the company. And I had had an idea in my head for about a year that I'd been kind of working on. And decided not to go with the new company and and then leave and start start my second company, which was Silver Oak. Round two here, yeah, I love that. It, it, it definitely sounds some there's some similarities right to the first round here, um, yeah. you know. But now you 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 know. Uh, uh, beefed up with a Harvard degree, you you you've done your management consulting, and again, uh, uh, you know from what I just what you just said about what Mitchell was doing, there was a bit about that already. What you then launched after it, which was called the Silver Oak Solutions uh, Company, uh, and and you were doing spent management, um, and I think you had a term they called Prism. Uh, what did you, yeah. explain a little bit what that means really, uh, and what exactly you guys were doing? Yeah, so Prism was a piece of software that we developed. Um, the, the, a lot of what we did at Mitchell Madison was helping companies spend their money, large companies that were decentralized and lots of divisions, mm. uh, coordinate and spend their money more, more, you know, better. And but a lot of it was not automated. So part of my idea for Silver Oak was to have a piece of software that would automate getting the okay. data, right? To be able to evaluate the opportunities, and then having another piece that was going consulting and negotiating with vendors to get better prices. So, um, so that was the premise for, for, uh, for silver Oak when we started hmm. the initial client base was private equity firms. And at the time, most private equity firms in the U S anyway, didn't have any internal operational teams, which most of them now do. So they, they would own 25 different companies and the 25 different companies would all go buy their computers and office supplies and health insurance and all that stuff. Right. Uh, in, 25 different ways yeah. so we had the software that would take data from each of the companies show us where the overlaps were and then we had a team that would go negotiate better pricing so we started out with private equity firms and then a friend of mine at the time was the treasurer of state of delaware small state um yeah. but he said could you do this for our state because we have 130 departments and don't really coordinate right. so as a test we did it it worked tremendously well we saved the state hundreds of millions of dollars Wow. And then we quickly kind of jumped into that and did 13 other states. And we got to a point where we had a reputation and were approached by a public company um, based in Canada, but global, called CGI. Uh, and they made an offer to acquire us, and we did negotiation and accepted. It took about seven years. Love it. Um, now, this is sort of, you know, again, just to give people a sense here, we talk about, I think you started the company in 1999 and, and the exit year is in 2007. Um, yeah. So, you know, there is obviously a little bit of dot-com boom and bust as well, which doesn't sound like it affected you because you guys were more on the tech side of it, right? You you were have a, you had a platform, right, a software which would run, was running systems on the back end, so it wasn't really that linked to the to the internet world yet, was it? Or, or Correct. No, right. no, it wasn't. 
Right, right, right. right. Pure software. Yeah, amazing. And and again, so you, you obviously you really grew the company from, as you said, from from very, from that small you know first idea to then you had offices across the region. And and I guess the interesting part, really, what I remember reading about it was that you guys were looking at billions and billions of dollars of these transactions, right? On the on the these yeah. these large spending companies have, and then figuring out how I guess to optimize them and save money and all that stuff in between, right? Absolutely, yeah, amazing. And so you, so in your, you're getting paid a fee, I guess. Is it? Uh, that's how. The, what was the business model there? Or are you getting? You get yeah, some... our fee was our fee was a retainer plus a percentage of savings. Right. Okay. So right. the more we, the more, the more we save them, the better we did. Yeah. Nice. So, so you ended up with a with your second exit, so to speak. Um, I'm yeah. assuming the second one was a little, quite a bit larger than the first one, um, yes, but yes. another nice take as an entrepreneur in the box here. Now, what do you do then? Because uh, you know, how do you get from there to Team Whistle? <laughs> I'd love to hear that one. Yeah, yep. So we we sold the company in 2005. I had a two year contract to manage the integration, which I did. Um, realized after two years, I did not want to work for a 25,000 person public company and was very frustrated with the bureaucracy that I had to deal with, you know, mm. a lot of the time. Um, even though it was a great company, I just, it wasn't me. Um, yes. so at the time my, uh, wife and I were living in Boston. I just had our second child and I think I was averaging 400,000 miles a year in the air flying around. Wow. between our offices and now CGI's offices. So I was gone a lot um, and just was burned out, frankly. So mm. I, the day, the, the day that the two years came up in my, in my contract, um, I resigned. Uh, I remember vividly going home, putting my uh, time Microsoft PC and Blackberry in the drawer in my home office, turning them off and closing the drawer. And uh, so for, and my goal was to take a year off and figure out what's next. Right. Um, and in that time, I, I really became a much more active father and saw the world through my young kids' eyes. Mm -hmm. And my young kids were just getting into Little League Baseball. I'm a big Red Sox fan in Boston. Right. Um, so I was taking them to games. We were going to the field and trying, you know, practicing. And in the morning, my ritual was I would come downstairs and have my cereal and watch ESPN. Uh, sports center and get the news yeah. of the day on sports and at the time um there's always those sort of seven drop down screens on the left of the tv screen on espn that were um you know the story of the day and the next story coming up and it was four or five of them every single day were scandals right. it was the time when tiger woods was going through his issues it was penn state in the u.s was going through a lot of issues so there were a lot of u.s sports uh scandals going on and they were being, in my opinion, overreported by the sports media news cycle. And it just wasn't what I wanted my kids to. So I would shut the TV off when my kids woke up and came down. Mm. And I, I, it just kind of got me thinking. When I was a kid, sports were so uh, important to the development of my character. I played soccer. I played tennis when I was younger. Then I got into to rowing. Um, and, and it really defined a lot about me. And uh, understanding physicality and how to eat well and, and math and science and uh, and teamwork and, and, you know, persistence and all the stuff that sports does in the right way. I didn't yeah. see my kids getting through sports media. Right. And at the same time, I also saw that they weren't watching TV the way that I did growing up. Right. They weren't coming home from school at three o'clock and waiting for their favorite show at four o'clock and putting that up. They were um, they were on the computers time and then as when the iphone came out they were like they took my wife's iphone they're on the iphone <laughs> they were watching media when they wanted to where they wanted to how they wanted to absolutely and i just didn't see that in traditional media so that idea kind of got stuck in my head for about a year and then um this was 2007 and then so i basically started reading books i didn't know anything about media at all but mm -hmm. i started reading books one of the things i got from both hbs and, and the consulting firm was just how to kind of quickly understand an industry and what the metrics were and how it worked. And um, so I hmm. decided to try and understand media and sports media. And so I started networking. I got on a plane and the, I met three people who were just instrumental in the launch of Whistle. First was Jerry Laybourne, who ran Nickelodeon okay. and made Nickelodeon into the cash cow for Viacom at the time, which was a kid's TV channel in the U.S., very popular. Yep. Um, brilliant, brilliant media executive still. She also... Um, started and 
launched and sold Oxygen Media with Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. Um, and uh, uh, so Jerry Laybourne, Mark Lazarus. Mark ran Turner Sports. Uh, he now runs half of NBC, but he uh, shortly after we met, uh, ran NBC Sports. Super nice guy, really smart. At the time, he had three teenagers. Um, so when I would explain this to him, he's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. My kids are on their phones. They're not watching live sports the way they used to. I mean, it's a very different world coming up. Right, right. And then um, the last person was a guy named Don Tapscott. And Don is a researcher in Toronto. And at the time, in 2009, he wrote a book called Grown Up Digital. And the premise of the book, someone emailed it, me a link, and I ordered it and got it and read it overnight and then called him and went up and took him out for, for dinner premise of the book was that there's this generation of young folks that are growing up in this digital world right. and they are digital natives yep. and as hard as we may try as parents or older people we're always going to be digital immigrants <laughs> and we're not really going to understand their world and yeah. so seeing my younger kids and now i have three uh, we had a daughter so i've got two boys and a daughter who are all teenagers you know seeing the, the the media world and the sports media world through their eyes um, over the past decade has been just fascinating to me. And Whistle has the research department and a data department. So we do a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of data supporting just the antidote that I see at home. Um, so, uh, so basically the idea for Whistle was to simplify it. And I got three of those people um, on my advisory board right. and decided to incorporate in 2008. And we actually did research for four years. Wow. Um, to try and understand this because we knew that kids were leaving TV. We didn't quite know where they were going to, where they were going at the time. The internet, you know, obviously they go online, right? But yeah. that's a big, crazy yeah. changing place. Um, and then in 2000 and, uh, so we started raising money, start hiring people. Uh, and we officially came up with a business model in 2000, early 2013. And then we officially launched on January 1st, 2014 their first channel on YouTube. Wow. Um, but, but for us, it was, it was this belief that the summary of the business was sort of ESPN meets Nickelodeon, even though our audience is now older. Mm. Um, but the, but the belief was that in, in the U S when I grew up, I'm 55. So there were three broadcast channels and you could watch sports between two and four, two and five o'clock on Saturday afternoon. That was pretty much it. Right. And then, the technology disruption of cable and satellite came along in 1979 and all of a sudden there's 500 channels right. now you've got 10 sports channels and you can watch sports 24 yeah. seven. And so that technology shift way that you could experience media, we felt at whistle that the combination of, um, of social media technology disruption combined with, uh, mobile phone video capability, both watching and creating, mm -hmm. those two things were going to fundamentally shift media. Right. And so that was the er early premise, the premise right. um, to play out. And, you know, we, you know, and, and the world was going from a one-to-many broadcasting model in media mm -hmm. to a many-to-many -many broadcasting model where my son will take his iPhone, go in the backyard, try and do a trick shot, take a video, put a soundtrack on it, upload it to his YouTube channel, share it with his friends. They would share with their friends. Yep. I mean, that that was a yep, huge portion of his media diet every day. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. So I, I that, love this. That uh, was a and, and I, I want to definitely dig a bit more deeper, of course, in exactly what you guys are doing now. But uh, before we go there, I, I want to go back to what you just said earlier in terms of that you did four years worth of research, uh, which in the world we're talking about here, which is so fast moving, that's an awful long yeah. time before you get yeah. a product in the market, in, in my view, you know, uh, and I'm not yeah. saying it's wrong. Obviously, you guys were hugely successful with it, which uh, proved the point. But, you know, you see a lot of times, and that's why I'd love to just get your thoughts on it, why and how, um, you know, people have an idea and as you said, whether they bring money along themselves or, or they raise it quickly with some friends and, and then they're out, right? And then you're testing and testing and it's sort of, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg stories, right, of how they launch Facebook. You kind of obviously did a very different process here. Um, just is that because of your consulting background or other things where you felt you guys weren't quite ready or what was it? You know, uh, talk me through those four years a little bit. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, as I look back, I think that the first two years were, frankly, me 
learning about media. Right. Because I didn't, yeah, I couldn't spell media when I had this yeah, idea in my head. It um, was in your background. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> right. So I, I had to understand the industry. I literally, again, networked, flew around, you know, took Mark Lazarus to lunch in Atlanta, took Jerry Laybourne to dinner in uh, in New York. I mean, I was, went to L.A. a couple of times. So I was flying around trying to meet people that I could learn from mm. and get their get their um, response to this idea. Mm. Um, I never forget I had a dinner with Jerry Laybourne who's become a dear friend and just absolutely brilliant. And, and she said to me two things. She said, first of all, um, she said, you have two huge advantages. She said, I don't think this is going to work. Media is hard to start. There's the road is littered with failed media companies. Yeah. She said, you have two huge advantages. The first is you're starting this with a white clean sheet of paper, right? So you have no, you're not worried about cannibalizing the linear revenue stream or right. dealing with quarterly profit pressures of a public company. So that's an advantage if you can figure it out the business model. Hmm. She said, the second thing is, and at, at the time I was a little put off, but in hindsight, I realized it was a compliment. She said, you're just ignorant enough <laughs> about this industry to start this company. Yeah. Um, so I think there was a two year learning curve for me personally. Right. The, the next two years were we did some experimentation. You know, we, we initially, believe it or not, the initial premise was, well, we'll launch a cable channel because that, that's a, no, a knowable thing that that we can figure out. Right. Um, we didn't uh, ultimately. But and then we'll launch a website. And so we actually launched a website. I hired okay. a consulting firm, launched a website. Hmm. Uh, Gen Z, which is 21 and under, yeah. and young millennials, this, the lower half of millennials, really aren't going to websites nope. today. Um, so the website didn't do very well. And uh, then we launched, uh, back in the day, there was a thing called the Microsoft uh, Live channel right. on Xbox. So we spent a lot of time in Seattle. We negotiated the deal for that. We launched that and realized that it was a uh, very difficult thing to find and download and our demographic, which at the time was sort of 13 to 21, just really wasn't going there. Right. So, um, so we, we experimented in a few things and then really what changed in 2013, um, was that we saw in discussions we were having with social media, early social media platforms like Facebook, we saw they were going to get into video. Mm -hmm. There was no video on Facebook in 2012, 2013, none. Okay. It was all pictures and links. Yeah. Okay. So when we heard they were going to get into Facebook, going to get into video, video mm. yeah. And then, um, and video was always our premise, right? It's always going to be video. Right. We're not going to do live sports. We couldn't afford the rights. Right. We're going to do everything around sports, right? right. We're going to do yep. player interviews, team backgrounds, trick shots, Fun stuff you do at home. Yeah. It's going to be sports lifestyle, as we call it. It's all USG, um, right? User-generated content, right? At the time, it was, yeah. We, we didn't do any original programming at the time. Right now, we do a lot of it. But, right. yeah, it was all USG. And um, But really, it was social media adopting uh, video. As soon as that happened, we found the business model. And that, that's when we really started raising money and ramped up the company. And, you know, we had an office in New York, but we opened one in L.A. and, and in London. And now we have one in Charlotte. So that was really a um, pivotal moment for us. And then, and then beyond that, so we started on YouTube and all of a sudden Facebook gets in the video. And then back then there was this thing called Vine, which was kind of the TikTok of today. Right. Um, but then all these other platforms started popping up. So we basically built a team of just kept going. young 25 year olds who were experts on these platforms and decided as a distribution strategy, we were going to go on every social media platform we could get on globally, um, yeah, makes which sense. we are. On. And, and now, Again, uh, I mean, I've, I, I looked around, it, but I'm not sure I really was able to fully uh, grasp this yet. So currently, you are almost up to 1,655 channels, I guess, to be accurate on what it, what it says on your on your website. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I'm assuming they all have different names. It's not all they're not called T yeah. Whistle, I'm sure, right? They're all this, this, that, and the other. Uh, so, how does yeah. it work? You guys just create um, names. So, this is for skateboarding and surfing, and God knows what uh, any other sort of uh, interesting activities. Or how do how do you guys <laughs> categorize it, or yeah. make any sense out of that? So we started, um, to your comment, back to UGC. The, the, the first version of our business was, um, and in hindsight, this will sound really planned out and organized. It wasn't at all. We were just trying to figure things out. 
But we started at the time by recruiting the biggest social media influencer in the U.S., which is a group of guys called Dude Perfect. Okay. Which are still okay. tremendous partners of ours. Right. And they and so the first back in the U.S. at the time there was a model called an MCN multi-channel network. Right. And we um, and that was the first phase of our business. And what we felt was we recruit influencers that do sports lifestyle stuff. We partner with them. We help them grow. Right. We help them with money. We bring brand. We have a sales team that that brings in brands and advertisers and helps them make money. We do help them with production. Um, we help them distribute off of the singular platform that they're on, which most of them at the time was just YouTube. So we help them get on Facebook and other platforms. Um, so we provide value to them, and and what we get from that is data. Right. We understand what videos work well on what platforms, what the retention rate is, what the engagement rate is, what the share rate is, all the data. And, and this is where my engineering came back into play because honestly, when when we started this, I did not think I would be CEO for 12 or 13 years. Hmm. But when this became a very different type of media business, data-driven media business, um, uh, it, it, it did fit my skill set a little bit better. So. So we started with the influencers, and I think we partnered now with about 500. Okay. And then, um, and we helped them grow, and so it was a win-win. And then, as we got this tremendous database, we launched in 2016, 17, um, an original content team. Okay. So then we started to create our own content that we owned and distributed. So I think of the 1,600 channels, probably 200 are whistle, what we call whistle O and O. Mm-hmm. which is content that is our brands, our, we own it. We can, you know, put it on different places. We can monetize it in different ways. Right. And we still continue to work with our social influencer partners. And uh, in many cases, their talent in our videos because their audiences are tremendous. The, this, we did some research in, recently in the U.S. And for under 25-year-olds, we asked for uh, likability between Dude Perfect, Tom Brady, and LeBron James. Right. And do it perfect. perfect one by far, wow. by far. Wow. So this whole new generation, and the reason is that that they've been they've been brought up in a world where they can relate to the people that they watch, and it, it's hard to relate to a pro athlete, especially the other great ones like Tom Brady, um, whom, whom I'm a big fan of. It, you know, it's hard to relate to them. With mm. Dude Perfect, they do a video. You post a comment, they comment back. There's a conversation. It's natural. Mm. Um, And so that has become what this young generation wants from their media. They don't want a post-game press conference that's staged and the athletes really can't say what they feel. They've got to say what they're supposed to say, right? They they want want natural feedback. So I think the younger pro athletes coming up are a lot more attuned to social media. So that'll change. But um, but, uh, so there was a relatability. and the other thing that I'll mention is that we also felt, I felt from the beginning, one of the tenets of the company was we're not going not gonna to go to scandal. We're not going to go negative. It's going to be our content is positive. It's relatable to this generation, this young generation, and um, it's inspiring. And it's definitely funny. I mean, funny is a big part of it, but it's not laugh at you funny. It's laugh with you funny. Right. So the common theme, we have 50 original series now that are across all seven major social media networks um, that do ph- phenomenal views. And the the common theme, you know, those four tenets uh, in the content. And that, we found that certainly centennials and the lower end of millennials really relate to that. They are tired of the controversy and scandals that dominate their parents' media and sports media. Yep. They just want to have fun and, and learn, obviously, follow their, you know, their sports heroes, but in a very different way. Love it, love it, and and now everything is making real complete sense now. Now, as I said, but even after I was doing some homework on it, I, I wasn't sure I could really visualize what exactly all the things you guys were doing. But now it's it's super clear. Now, again, let me just stay, let's go step a bit back uh, for a minute here. Um, that sort of model, I'm assuming, is initially uh, which is that you partnering with these influencers and then you sort of make some money together, right? There's probably revenue yes. share models and we, all this we, usual thing, right? Yep. 
Yep. Um, that's exactly it. Yeah. You know, and that's not always that easy, right? Uh, you know, that, that, that's, you know, you're sharing a pie of a pie and so on. Um, you know, and I, you know, so I'm assuming a bit, it, it probably took a bit of time before, you know, the revenue streams were getting large enough that, you know, you weren't constantly putting more money in it, but you were also, from what I see that you were constantly raising money, right? You know, you raised a hundred million dollars is I think what's out there publicly. So, um, yeah. was that, needed to sustain it or was it neat you were using it more because you saw these massive growth opportunity you know there's obviously a little different to it yeah it was definitely the latter it was growth and right. so we raised four rounds of capital about 110 million in total mm -hmm. series a in 2011 uh it was about every two and a half years we did the series a b c d okay. um and we did it because the we we, we put the pieces together. So initially the series A was let's do this multi-channel network thing. Let's get some great influencers. We took typically 20% of the revenue, but we, but we had a sophisticated, we built a sophisticated sales team that could go out and bring a lot more revenue to these creators than they could get on their own. Right. It wasn't just that pre-roll video. It was branded content, um, native advertising, whatever you call it, but it was, there, there was an, there was a, an interest in that. Just to yeah. give you perspective, Dude Perfect today, when we started, when they, they were our first partner in January 1st, 2014, they had 2 million YouTube followers, subscribers, mm -hmm. people yeah. who reached in and subscribed to follow them, which means that when they launch a new video, you get a notification on your YouTube channel. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's a very engaged audience. It's not a passive TV audience. It's yes. like clicking through channels. Yeah. Uh, today they have 55 million YouTube subscribers oh. and they have another 50 million on the other social media platforms. So they have over a hundred million mm. avid engaged fans. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, any brand who wants to sell anything to, you know, anyone under 25 or 30, um, you know, sees a huge opportunity to get involved that's with them and, and do a really fun video that includes their product. If it's the right fit creatively, um, or do advertising. So, um, uh, so yeah, the, the initially, so the, the, the capital raise, so initially it was, okay, let's get this audience. Let's get the, the data. Number one priority for us, get the data on what's working on what platforms mm. and let's do it with our partners who are successful social media influencers. And let's understand why they're being successful they're just kind of doing videos and some of them went viral and some didn't. Why right. is that? How do we right. decode that? There's a, there's an algorithm to figure that out. Right. Right. Um, so that was the first round of capital. Second round of capital was, um, we started to bring in revenue and then we had to build the sales team out to really, to really ramp that up. Mm. The third round of capital was, um, original content. So once we had enough data and a and a strong perspective around what worked within the parameters of our creative guidelines on the, the four areas I just mentioned, um, uh, how do we begin to own some of our data? And, and our goal has never been to completely, to, like traditional media, we, we don't need to own all the data. I'm right. sorry, own all the content. We want to see, we want to have the data for all the content, but we want to own some of the content. And our goal is kind of 50-50, and that's pretty right. much where we're at now. Right. Um, but, uh, and then the fourth round was just, okay, we've got, we've got revenues coming in, and then it was diversification. So we, in the last two years, launched Whistle TV, which is we're on, I believe, about 100 million connected TVs in the United States right now in 100 million households um, for Whistle TV because we realized some of our audience had grown up over the past 10 years and they were watching a little bit of connected TV, so why not play there too? <laughs> so you went back um, to the original idea huh? when you mentioned earlier. A little bit, yeah, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. That's not anywhere near as big as the social media yeah, <laughs> audience yeah, we have. But of course, of anyway, course. we decided to play there. Um, so it was just, it was that, it was investing in, but it was diversifying revenue. So we have revenue now from selling merchandise across our sort of 50 shows. And hmm. to your earlier question, which I thought was, or point, which I thought was a good one. It's not a, I don't, we don't think in this world of media where, where someone has infinite choices of content and, um, that it's about one brand. It's about whistle or, or 11, or we, we think it's really about brands that resonate. So right. we have a, we have, I believe, the second most viewed show on Snap right now. It's called Brother. Mm -hmm. um, and Snap is a huge and growing platform for us. Yeah. Um, we have a really popular show that's been on a variety of platforms called No Days Off. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, owning original content, having the brands stand on those sub brands, I guess you'd say, stand on their own, and then selling merchandise around the sub brand. And then we're, there's one 
uh, brand we have called Dunk League that we're in the process of setting up a series of events. So we'll, as the world comes back, hopefully to live events, we'll be active in that. So it's, it's just really finding, it's using the data to find what's engaging the audience on social media, extending that to other media platforms. So, you know, we've been on a variety of, of digital and linear platforms as well. Um, and, and then figuring, figuring out the 10 different ways you can monetize that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And, and but before we come into the some of your acquisitions, I'd love to really get get into there as well. I, I want to stick for one more minute on the. So currently, you have well, from again the numbers I've seen, you have about six, over six hundred million aggregated social media audiences. That means these are the followers, I guess, across all the channels and and the influencers you guys will work with. Uh, would that be correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so of that, uh, and then you have, let's say, over 4 billion monthly views and about half, half, maybe half in the U.S. and the other half comes from around the world. Um, which yes. are the other big regions where that content resonates? Is it other English speaking markets or it is really truly global or how does it work? Yeah, it's it's um, great question. It's uh, we have large market in the U.K., large markets in Europe, um, a little bit in Asia, Japan. Mm -hmm. Um we're hoping part of the uh, part of our interest in, in partnering with Eleven was was to get their help um, expanding more into Asia. We haven't really gone into Latin America yet. Right. But what, what we've two two things we learned early on in the data that we saw was that young sports fans are global. Mm -hmm. Like they, you know, when I grew up, I, I couldn't follow any sports team outside of the town I lived in, just because that's what the media that's, sure. that's the regionality of media at the time. Um, they, uh, you know, my sons are huge fans of, of Leeds United, uh, for obvious reasons, but also, <laughs> yes. um, but connection. also because they love soccer football. And so they're, you know, and so very few times they actually watch the TV set in our family room. It's for things like Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, NBC usually puts on, um, a premier league game. And, and when Leeds is on there, they're watching it, they're mm. partly watching it and they're also on their phones, but yeah. at least they're kind of sitting there on the couch with me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so they're, they're global sports fans. And, yeah. and a lot, secondly, a lot of our content is, um, is not related to the, to language, to the specific language mm -hmm. that's viewed in. So half of the 600 million is outside the U S and half of our views are outside the U S and yeah, a lot of it's in English speaking countries, but a lot of, but some of it's not. And it, it's because it's, you know, if there's a trick shot video with a great soundtrack, it doesn't really matter. It yeah, doesn't really matter who. Yeah, I think. It, it is. Uh, it, it is content which translates but, but without a, the language. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think sport does that, and yeah. it's wonderful for me personally to see to see that dynamic and to see the world, the, the great sports of the world, open up to you know my kids in the U.S. and, and their friends in the U.S. So that's been um, a wonderful. You know, sort of development in the yeah, last. Yeah. And again, I mean, just thinking out loud here, expanding your business model. Um, you know, work. It's it's the end of the day, it just means okay, find some Spanish speaking influencers, find some whatever Chinese speaking influencer or Indian speakers, um, to then duplicate it and 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 of course, you know, therefore expand it. Is isn't that hard, right? Because you had the model in place now, right? It's just now. That's exactly. You know, exactly the premise. And when I met Andrea Rajani five years ago at a conference in Monaco. That was um, exactly what we talked about. Yeah, yeah you know, exactly. So scaling, yeah, that's, that's, scaling that's, is, is, that's is, is becomes easy now. That's for sure. Or on yeah, the basis on the got, back of it, what, the way you look at yeah, it. Yeah, we've got, we've got the model and obviously country by country is different as you know, but, but we, we, we're optimistic that we can now quickly scale to, um, on a country by country basis. Yeah, agree. Now let's talk a bit about your acquisitions. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, and you had, you know, there's three companies from what I've seen, right? Vertical Networks, New Form, and Tiny Horse. Um, yep. All very, again, all slightly different companies, um, but uh, I guess sort of fit, fitting into the overall model and overall picture. Um, yep. Maybe just just uh, touch touch a bit on all of them a bit and and what you guys did and and how they fit into into the strategy. Yep. So, um, uh, part of the, uh, use of funds for our last round, our series D was acquisitions. And we, as we got to a scale where we were getting approached and, and we could look out at, you know, smaller companies and, 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 ha and think about M and a, um, uh, we had our, we had our Apple companies we were interested in, got to know over the years and, 
Um, so part of the funds were used in the Series D for that. But the first one was um, uh, was Newform, and Newform it was a studio in LA that did scripted content, and a lot of it was not sports. And what one of the interesting things we saw in the data was um, was that the sing was that the, the this young generation. And when I say that again, it's like I'm kind of 13 to 25 is the age range. Mm -hmm. They were not, they were not as interested in singular genres. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. We did a show for YouTube called Finding Football. Um, Original content they paid us for. We, there are two really funny and talented uh, soccer football players in the UK. And they go under the banner F2 on YouTube. Um, Really nice guys really well-rounded. So we did a show called Funny Football, which was, we took them to eight cities around the world. The show was, and they do football freestyle trick shot stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, the show was part travel show, but we'd explore, they were through their eyes, right? We'd explore this, they were the talent. We'd explore the city a little bit. Right. We would explore the food in the city and they'd see what they liked and didn't like. We usually found a local musician to partner with us in this. So it was a music piece to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the core was obviously football and their um, skills, and they do these amazing trick shots. Yeah. That, that's four different genres. And, and so what we realized was yeah. that a lot of the videos that were being watched wasn't just watch a sports game or, you know, yeah. watch a music video. It was these combinations. Bringing things together. Um, so that, total sense. that was a bit of a – yeah, that was a bit of a and, – and I think, it, I think it originates from back to the story of my kids – Again, they go take a video with their friends. They goof around. They add a filter to it um, with their iPhone. They add a soundtrack to it. You know, it, it's they may be add, add different motion characteristics to it, but it's not just a straight-on simple video of one thing shooting another. Right? It's correct. It, there's a lot of different parts to it. So, anyway, New Form uh, did scripted content. They were really highly regarded, small studio in LA. Mm-hmm. Ron Howard um, and Discovery owned most of it. ITV owned a piece. Um, and they just got to a point where it was hard for them to scale on their own. Mm-hmm. So we approached them and said, be part of us. We, we want to get into more original content right. and scripted is a piece of that. And we're, we don't have that skill set. So that was the logic between that got, yeah, for that makes acquisition. Sense. Makes sense. And then about six months later, um, we acquired a company called Vertical Network, which was um, owned by Liz Murdoch and, and Snap mm-hmm. and Snap by this time had become a really good partner of ours. Um, they were engaging exactly the audience we want to engage and they were doing it in phenomenally smart ways, we thought. Um, so, uh, and Vertical Networks had some great shows on Snap. Um, so for us, that was just a way to really massively and quickly increase our presence on Snap. Um, and same same logic, I went and met with Liz um, Murdoch in London. It's, you know, we can help you scale. We can get, we can get your company to the next level. So yeah. come be part of us, and most every one of the three part deals had a large equity part. Them, so right. we we wanted them to go with us. Yeah, and, and you, know, you just mentioned uh, Liz Murdoch here. You have a fairly illustrious group of investors, right? Liberty Global, Snap is in there, Discovery, you know, NBC, uh, Jeff Katzenberg. Uh, you have some footballers and 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 uh, sports star, uh, you know, Derek Jeter and Peyton Manning. Um, how do they all show up? Is it just they're also come across what you guys are doing? They're fans of it, um, and then end up being investors, or you you targeted them specifically and and had a way to get in front of them. You know how how do you find these sort of high profile guys? Yeah, um, two parts to that. Two, two parts to that answer. <laughs> the first is that I have flown um, a little quiet time during the pandemic to go back and look at some records and I've flown 3.2 million miles in the last 12 years. Right. So they would have come to me, but yeah, for meetings, right. For, for meetings. And, and a lot of my job was fundraising. Mm-hmm. So, and, and investor relations, um, it, you know, what amazed me from the beginning was that the idea of positive sports related content for this new generation mm. resonated with so many people. Uh, and so I just, one door opened another. Again, I, I knew none of these people prior to launching Whistle. And, um, you know, uh, 
a lot of funny backstories. But I got to Jerry Laybourne because her husband was involved with a, a thing called the Wedding Channel, and the Wedding Channel filmed my wedding, and he was there, and I met him. And then when I, you know, six years earlier, and then when I decided to do this, I called him, and he's like, "You got to meet my wife, Jerry." So I went there. Jerry, after we got to know each other, and she joined her advisory board, made a few calls, and she called a guy named Bob Pittman, who's a very well-known um, media executive in the U.S., and Bob invested, and then he made a call, and so it, we just got, right. it, it just was a daisy chain of, of people liking the idea at the mm -hmm. end of the day, and then when we started to execute, there was something they could see, and they liked what they saw, They and, and it, it's funny, I went back and looked across 187 investors, and I almost to a, we have some institutional Sky and NBC and Liberty, um, et cetera. But t for the individual folks, almost to a person, they either have teenage kids or teenage grandkids, mm. and yeah, so they yeah. could they relate, relate to, to wow, my you know my you know my kids are watching media differently. There's yeah. something. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and I, I months, have kids yeah, at the same back, age yeah. too. So everything you're saying, yeah. I can completely relate to, uh, especially yeah. the part about how they like to mix the stuff. Like my son is a gamer. Right. He's a sports guy too, but he's, he's a gamer. But he loves watching food stuff. <laughs> Can't ask me yep. why. He likes watching how people cook, you know, which is, yep. it makes no sense to me at all. But uh, it, that's how they do it. Yeah, it is, it's an interesting mix, and and, uh, and that's how they're engaged. So I, I completely get it. He does some streaming. He's a bit of a YouTuber there, or wants to be one. And so it's fun. It's, I, I love watching it, and, and I can very much relate to it, uh, everything you just said. So now, that, well, since we're sort of coming a little bit also to, to, the, to the closing finish line here, but, you know, of all the fun stuff you guys are doing. So... Yeah, companies grow and amazing, and I think everyone is you know been listening here is or will be listening um, can understand how really what you're doing, and, and I can see how you're looking to scale around the world. Um, why did you do the deal with Eleven? Um, what was and you mentioned a bit earlier already, but uh, maybe we'll go a little deeper now in it. Um, why would you sell the company at the stage? Um, you know, is there the investors um, who some of them looking for an exit, or you just felt it was the right time, or, or is it not really a sale? It's a you know, it's another form. How, how maybe unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So um, in October of last year, I took my one plane flight of the year and I flew to Milan, Italy, to meet with Andrea, mm -hmm. where he lives. And I've I've gotten to know Andrea really well in the last four or five years since he did the first investment. Um, he is a he is a visionary in how sports media is evolving right. more than almost anyone I've talked to in the last decade. And um, from the beginning, he and I talked about the fact that if you combine, uh, if you think about the two companies together in four dimensions, content, they have live sports. We don't. Yep. There's a lot of wraparound content you can create from a live sports or an event that we would love to have access to. We're doing it right now, actually, at Leeds. Um, you know, before the before the match, after the match, you know, the week the week before the match, what are the players eating? What do they listen to when they get their headphones on walking in the stadium? All that background lifestyle yeah. stuff. Right. Um, uh, we have a, a ton of social media content, uh, short form. We also have some long form, um, but a lot of sports lifestyle and broader entertainment content. He also believes that sports and entertainment are going to become a very blurry line. But in, in a good way. Um, so content, the content is amazingly, uh, I think, synergistic. Secondly, the, the distribution of that content, they have linear in 10 countries in Europe and Asia. We have, um, and they have some digital. We have social everywhere, except for China right now, but everywhere. And they have, um, and, and we have a little digital. So together, and when I say digital, I mean um non-social but non-linear so right. all the stuff in between it from ott to websites and all that yeah, yeah. um uh from an audience perspective they have you know 35 to 60 year olds we have 13 to 25 year olds roughly so we have the full age spectrum of audience which yeah. no sense. sports media company today has mm. um, and then from a revenue perspective they have long-term predictable rights agreement driven contracts mm -hmm. um we have seven other revenue streams from digital advertising to branded content to merch sales to event ticket sales um uh except to be, we do there's a portion of our business that does b2b we run the 
Premier League's YouTube channel, for example. So we have some B2B revenue. So the revenues just really complement each other. And so when you put that all together, there's no other company that I'm aware of that will be at the scale that we're at mm. um, anytime soon uh, yeah. globally. So like that, that, that was really the business side of what drove it. Mm. To your question on the investor side, we merged the stock of the two companies. Right. At some okay. point down the road, we'll probably go public. But all our investors are in this with now Andrea and his investors right. because I think people see that vision. And I had to call all 107 of our investors and, and let them know that we're doing this. And the support I got was tremendous. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. From a personal perspective, I want to work with Andrea. I mean, he's just a really high energy, passionate, smart entrepreneur who has, you know, um, the Midas touch. I mean, the guy has done yeah, it's done very well. well. Yeah, I, I know Andrea year. for probably 20 years uh, when he first started yeah. out here in Asia. We basically, we sort of started around the same time. So, yeah, we're, we're good friends and we've crossed the paths many times uh, here in Asia as well as, of course, at the at the Sportels of the world, um, yep. you know, doing his MP Silver days and, and everything else. So, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Greatest respect there of what he's achieved and, and what he's building still now on the, on the back of his, I guess, you know, big exit he had there, you know, a few years ago. Yep. Um, so look, I, it, that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that's why I was curious. Um, you know, what is the combo there? But uh, that just makes total sense. And on the back of it, yeah, I can see this is a very interesting and attractive business to a, either take public or, of course, for for other even larger media entities one day to have a look at this. So, uh, yeah, well done there. That sounds exciting. We, um, we've we've been approached over the years by some of the major sports media companies. Um, I think so. And yeah. I just didn't. I just didn't. I just didn't feel like. Um, I just felt like we'd be acquired and then get lost in the bureaucracy right, of, right, of right. that company. I, I didn't feel like they would see the vision and really want to. Right. They want to do what we want to do. Again, this is public uh, out there, so I'm not giving away secrets, but I think I see what I read is the the 11 sport group together with you guys now. It's about 300 million in revenue with 300 people across US, Europe, Asia. So, you know, it's a a good size business there. And uh, and it looks like many more things to go to come in the future, though. So, well, I look forward to seeing more of you guys here in Asia. Uh, You know, (laughs) maybe there are some things we can help you with as well. Now, one thing I have a couple of more questions here just to, to kind of wrap it up. Uh, one is obviously the world of gaming and esports. Um, I haven't really heard that yet as much in your uh, and when you talk about you talk about traditional sports and, and many other things. Um, is it on your radar? Or is it something you guys are already doing? You know, you're working with stuff with with yeah, these influencers it, as well, or not yet? Yeah. It, it, it. First of all, I'm a huge believer that that is going to be a huge component overall of, of sport. However, you define it globally, just yeah. given that the the this, this young generation how much and how much of their lives it consumes. Um, I think, uh, yeah, we're we're already in it, to to in a in but in a slightly different way. So we have about twenty five uh, professional gamers that are in our network, um, but we don't do the live events. Uh, we do their lifestyles. So no, we will. They'll post videos for us. We will send production crews out to, um, increasingly more now, post-COVID, production crews out to sort of um, film their, what what it's like to be the life of you know one of these one of these folks. And um, so yeah, it's it's a small but very growing piece of what Whistle's doing. I know that um, Eleven also has interest um, in getting into that as well. So with their abilities we we may get into the, a little bit of the live piece of it but um yeah it's a it's a super exciting area for us mm. yeah, yeah i i would imagine that it seems so such a natural space right especially if you think of the, yeah. the scale of these influences right if you look at what ninja and these guys are doing it's just you know off the chart um, it's I mean, enormous. They're, they're as big as anyone out there in the world right now and and, of, and their yep. capacity you know goes with it too so um yeah and that's partly what we're doing here we're building a bit like some of the stuff you guys are doing actually we're doing right now in the gaming space so i'd love to you know catch a we'll have another chat on that uh maybe to compare some notes and and learn some of the things you guys are doing there 
Uh, but to Absolutely. kind of nicely wrap it up here, we're almost hitting the hour here, which is great. Uh, we're nice on time. But I, I, you know, you we we you you mentioned it earlier. You 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 studied at Harvard, but you didn't just study and then left and you know and, and sort of have that degree sitting somewhere on your desk. Um, you're very actively involved there, right? You're the you're in the Harvard Alumni Network or Association there. Uh, what I've saw at least you have many roles uh, over the last I don't know ten years I guess, um, and you're currently even the president I guess of the alumni association. So, um, you know, it's the obvious why you would do it. I I, I I don't want to just even ask the obvious, but uh, you know, how do you how do you leverage how do you use it or, or what is it what is mostly in there for you? Is it just you know networking with fellow Harvard uh, grads or is it really business related or you know or everything in between? Yeah. Um- Interesting question. So I, so I went to Harvard Business School, and Harvard Business School is a pretty isolated part of Harvard University. Harvard University has eleven graduate schools in the undergrad in Rad, Radcliffe. Right. There's just a tremendously uh, diverse and interesting place. And I, I, and the business school is actually across a river. It's very kind of physically isolated, um, although that's changing. But uh, so uh, I didn't do anything with any alumni for uh, ten years after I graduated. And then I got a random email right as I decided to leave the second company that I, the second, the company I sold my second company to. Mm. And so I had a little time and the email was, Hey, come join the board basically. And, uh, so I got involved in this board and it's not, it's a, it's like three days. There's three board meetings a year. They're a couple of days long each. So it's not a huge time commitment. Mm. And what I've found over 11 years of being on the board. And then this a year ago, I was elected president. Is a volunteer one-year term, a little more time, but this was a unique year. I didn't go to any meetings. I was on, on a lot of Zoom calls. I just, the, very similar to what happened when I got an engineering degree and then I couldn't, didn't have any business friends. Now, when I got HBS, most of my friends were business friends, and I didn't really have a lot of diversity in my conversations. Um, and what I found is just a really diverse group of people who are doctors and lawyers and, and you know, faculty members and um uh, from all different walks of life. And, right. and it was energizing to me. I would go to one of these meetings and I have an idea that come in my head that I could apply to my business that I would never have gotten if I didn't sit in this meeting and talk to someone mm-hmm. who knew nothing about business or my, either one of my companies. So, Absolutely. um, I just, it's, it was, it's been personally rewarding to me and it's been a f- really amazing group of friendships that I've gotten out of it. Um, and I live in Cambridge, so it's it's not that far of a, of a yeah. You're in the go neighborhood, a mile, go a mile down the road. So um, it it really was. Uh, it's been rewarding, and you know, it's, I tell my wife that sort of the three parts of my life are my, my wife and my children, my business, and then Harvard has been a, has been a big part. Um, it's going to decrease it's a lot. Interesting, because I, I literally would say the same to I'm a YPO member, uh, and you might know a bit about it because I think uh, I do, the CEO yeah. is is a YPO Michael, as yeah. well, right? Michael is, and yeah. and that you know, in some sense, it's that the network it is similar, right? There's a glo- huge global network of CEOs and, and entrepreneurs, and the learning is 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 amazing. You know, networking, of course, and sometimes you know there is a business opportunity to it, but that's it is not even meant for that, right? It's not even you're not supposed right. to solicit each other for business, but it's just you know, you can ask anyone any time of the day a question, or if you got a problem, or or you're looking for, uh, you know, a particular contact in the, in the city you're flying into or whatever. It's they're there, right? And and that's amazing. Right. And I'm sure Harvard has probably something similar like that. So, uh, yeah, it's very it's, powerful. It's, I think there's value when you're an entrepreneur, as you know, you, you, you're so hyper focused on one thing all the time. 24 seven. Yep. And it's just good to, to have a couple of days every few months where you have to shut that off, which is hard, but you, you have to shut that off and just, just open your mind to other ideas. And again, I, I've gotten so much more out of it than I've given. And, um, it, 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 from what Michael explains to me, the YPO is very, very similar. You, you can't, he comes away from the meetings he goes to with just tremendous contacts and network, of course, but, but probably as important just out of the box, different ideas Absolutely. that you can then bring back and apply your business. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. No, great. Well, I, I had a fellow Howard uh, alumni with uh, Dr. Marcus Elliott on uh, on the podcast, you know, last year I think. Uh, oh yeah, he does applied sports yep. science. In- unbelievable man, uh, incredible podcast. It was one of those podcasts just blew me away. Uh, the his stories and, and what he's doing there. So I'm not sure you ever came across each other there, but uh, he's a good one to uh, to to reach out to as well. Um, I'll look but, him up. I yeah, definitely. Or I'll 
I'll connect you. <laughs> thank but you. Uh, John, thank you very much for your time here. I really enjoyed this. I, I know so much more about it. I learned a ton of things. I have about a page and a half of scribbles here of taking notes of the things you were telling. And uh, and I, I'm certain others will as well because – what you're doing again, I think, is very relatable for many parts of the world. Um, you, obviously, you've done it extremely successful from the U.S. and now going global. Um, you know, but people in, in other parts of the world who are doing doing things like this already, whether they could partner with you or, or again, you know, trying to do something in their own language in their own country. Uh, I think it's there is so much similarities, and, and I've no doubt people will learn from from our conversation here. So I really thank you for that, and and uh, wish you a great day there in in uh, in Boston or in Cambridge. Well, Marcus, thank you very much. It was, it's, uh, you, you, don't, you don't get a chance to talk about yourself much being an entrepreneur, so it's definitely interesting for me. And um, uh, I'm a huge fan and look forward to uh, meeting you in person. Hopefully it's Bortel or if not sooner. Definitely. Yeah, that, that'd be fun. Um, we'll definitely catch up soon. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.